Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's roundtable with three top Washington political reporters looking back on the big news of the past week, which turned out to be another week for the history books where we saw the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States on the very steps of the Capitol, occupied just two weeks earlier by a mob of domestic terrorists aimed at overthrowing the government, where we saw for the first time in 152 years, the outgoing president refused to attend the inauguration of the new commander-in-chief where we saw, because of COVID, the very first virtual inauguration, followed by a virtual inaugural parade and a virtual night of entertainment, and where we saw the new president make his mark immediately, signing 15 executive orders on his very first half day in office. So definitely under President Biden, it's a new day. What's it all mean? Where's it all lead? Here with some answers today. David Jackson joining us, White House correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hey, Bill, how you doing? All right, we're ready. Eliza Collins, political reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Hello, Eliza. Hi there. Good to have you with us again. And Chris Liu, coming back from working on the transition for President Biden, former cabinet secretary and deputy secretary of labor under President Barack Obama. Hello, Chris. Welcome back. Hey, Bill. So collectively, uh, uh, friends, we have... uh, Uh, either covered or attended a lot of presidential inaugurations. This was like no other that any of us us have ever seen. First, because it was all virtual. Secondly, because where they were sitting, you could still see the scars of the attack on the Capitol a couple of weeks earlier. It was a real challenge on the part of the Biden uh, team and on the part of the Senate inaugural committee, led by Roy Blunt and Amy Klobuchar, uh, to pull off this inaugural, uh, this inaugural ceremony, i just like to ask each of you first, how do you think they did? What was your impression, Eliza? I think they did a really good job in very strange circumstances. I mean, there were definitely <laughs> things that were, you know, missing. I mean, a big crowd being one of them, but little things like the luncheon after the inauguration in the Capitol didn't happen. But overall, it really did seem like a pretty normal inauguration. And if you were watching sort of the schmoozing happening on the Capitol platform, there was lots of hugging in a pandemic. Um, it really did feel like most past inaugurations, except, of course, as you mentioned, the outgoing president was not there. Mike Pence Mm -hmm. was there, so that added a little bit of normalcy. But I think given the circumstances, it looked really pretty normal. What do you think, David? Uh, Pretty much the same thing. One thing, I I was at the White House while all this was going on, and Uh one thing I noticed was that the cameras were focused on the we're focused on the inaugural stand, like like, like it was a television studio. Then there was there were really tight shots of the inaugural stand of the speakers, mm-hmm. and when they would go to the crowd, they would only go to individuals within the crowd. That there wasn't any pan shot because obviously there wasn't anything to shoot because there wasn't a huge crowd. But 
I was struck by the way that the television, the television producers handled the inaugural, and I think they they all did a good job. Yeah, uh, I mean the uh, the it was really an inaugural to watch on television for more reasons right. than one, I think. Right? Uh, hey, Chris, what's your take? Phil, you know I'm a native Washingtonian, and uh, I have uh, been to inaugurations for both parties, and so I was a little wistful um, to see my you know, hometown, you know, basically under lockdown. Uh, and so I yeah. miss kind of the pageantry and the parades of the event. I, I am struck by how well it went off. Uh, as others have said on Twitter, uh, I want Amy Klobuchar and Roy Blunt to emcee everything from now on. They're, they're actually a very <laughs> good team, and uh, they were funny and they were spontaneous. And I just love the tradition of the former presidents arriving. And it, it, it is like a it, it, it makes you feel good about our democracy, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on. Mm-hmm. Eliza, were there any highlights uh, for the ceremony for you? Well, one thing that I thought was very interesting that happened ahead of the ceremony um, is that Jim Clyburn and former President George Bush were chatting quite a bit. And Mm -hmm. then afterward, Jim Clyburn actually told reporters in South Carolina that President Bush had come up to him and basically told him he called him the savior and said that him endorsing Biden was really like saving America. And that was just really interesting to me. Talk about sort of this bipartisan moment at the inauguration. Um, and that comes with that, you know, that schmoozing on the Capitol platform ahead of time. So that they still did have that. Right. How about you, David? Anything strike out that you thought was really that re- you remember mostly about the ceremony? I thought the singing performances were were really deeply moving. Oh. I thought Lady Gaga did a very gr- good job with oh. the national anthem, which is very hard to sing. Jennifer Lopez with "America the Beautiful" and Garth Brooks, who I guess was the conservative representative, if you will, I thought was <laughs> did a good job with "Amazing Grace." And then to Chris's point, uh, Roy Blunt came back up and, and said the same thing that I was thinking. It was very reminiscent of when Barack Obama sang "Amazing Grace" yeah. at the memorial service at the for the victims of the Charleston church shooting. So I. I, I just found that very moving and very comforting. Yeah, I've read that Garth Brooks is getting a lot of uh, blowback from conservatives for uh, a daring to yeah. appear on the same stage with Joe Biden. But exactly. He said, that's the flip side. And that's, yeah, that's most unfortunate. But, but, but you know, he said it was the thing to do in the right place, the right, right thing to do at the, at the right time. Uh, what struck you, Chris, other than uh, Bernie Sanders' mittens, you know, which you're getting a lot. <laughs> Bernie Sanders' mitten and all the memes that came afterwards. <laughs> I was really moved by the uh, ceremony at Arlington Cemetery that followed oh, afterwards. Yeah. And what 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 struck me as interesting is um, the three former presidents and the first ladies, you know, being lined up there and waiting. Uh, these are people who probably are not used to waiting for anybody. Mm-hmm. And for Joe Biden, who has spent his career waiting for other people, gets to walk in at the last minute and, and they're all waiting for him. And it really is kind of the interesting uh, symbolic, you know, transfer of power and uh, a, a moment that Biden has been waiting for for 40 years has finally come to fruition. Yeah, it was also extraordinary while they were at Arlington to see the three presidents, President Obama, President Bush and President Clinton, uh, do that little taped um, um, co- the commentary, if you will, on the significance of the occasion, which which played as part of the entertainment uh, later that night. Uh, but to see those three former presidents, I thought, uh, together, um, 
it's a club, the most exclusive club in the world. Uh, and uh, as several people pointed out, a club that uh, Donald Trump was never asked to join or never wanted, wanted to join. Uh, you know, before we move on, I have to say uh, what blew me away at the inauguration was um, the performance of Amanda Gordon, our young poet laureate. Uh, just unbelievable presence uh, and such a powerful message. Uh, just electrified the crowd, I thought. Got a standing ovation from the gang, on the, from the people on the platform, which I think she deserved. But of course, every, we were all waiting to hear uh, the president, the new president's inaugural address. Uh, basically, a message of unity, 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 a word he kept repeating. Uh, and he also said, uh, here's a big difference. We're going to govern with truth and not with lies, President Biden. And hear me clearly, disagreement must not lead to disunion. Many centuries ago, St. Augustine wrote that a people was a multitude defined by the common objects of their love. What are the common objects we as Americans love that define us as Americans? I think we know. Opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and yes, the truth. In recent weeks and months have taught us a painful lesson. There is truth and there are lies. Lies told for power and for profit. Uh, Eliza, he didn't mention any names. <laughs> he didn't have to, did he? He did not. And that's typical Biden. I mean, he really has not criticized uh, Donald Trump unless he absolutely has felt like he's had to. And so I think, you know, him saying that he was going to go in and call for unity going after his predecessor probably would not help that. Um, and we saw some Republicans after, you know, saying that it was a really good message. They kind of said remains to be seen if it happens. But I think overall he got pretty good marks from, you know, a bipartisan group. Yeah, David, he seemed to say, look, this is a new day. Let's just start out on a new footing and uh, all work together. A message we've heard from him before, um, but um, do you think it uh, had any impact coming on, you know, Inauguration Day? I think so. I mean, I, I definitely think it's, it, we all know who he was talking about. And one of the fundamental facts going forward is there is a tremendous amount of division within the Republican Party right now. We've got some people who are still loyal yep. to Trump, but we got others who are desperately wanting to get away from Trump one of whom I think is Mitch McConnell. So that presents, to me, that presents an opportunity to Biden because he can pick off a few Republicans who are interested in moving the party forward on things like COVID and COVID relief and economic stimulus. And I, I think he did a good job of appealing to those kind of Republicans. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, Chris, um, some people said, well, this was there was not kind of the lofty rhetoric that you usually hear in an inaugural address. But, um, you know, I thought this was, this is pure Joe Biden, basically just straight talk to the American people. And I think that's exactly right. Look, Joe Biden is never going to be uh, Barack Obama in terms of his oratorical skills, but this was the right tone for this moment. And as others have said, there, there was a consistency in the message. This is really what Joe Biden talked about when he launched his you know, campaign a year and a half ago in Philadelphia about restoring the soul of our nation. You know, He was attacked during the Democratic primaries for 
this kind of hokey notion of returning to old times. But, you know, he stuck through it. And it turns out that's what America needs in this moment. It obviously remains to be seen how well this will be carried out if you've got a party on the other side that doesn't want to reciprocate. But for this one moment when our nation comes together, it was the, the, the tone that should have been set. Right. Uh, and then, um, without the luncheon, you know, the exchange of gifts, they went off to Arlington. There was a very syncopated um, presidential parade where they walked a block into, into the White House. Uh, and then the new president got down to work, Eliza, 15 executive orders waiting for him to sign, and he sat down and signed them. I mean, if nothing else, uh, you sort of got the impression that this gang knows what they're doing. Yeah, well, many of them have done this before, right? So they did. They had a lot of executive orders, and they covered most of his day one promises. Um, you know, things like getting back in the Paris Climate Accord. He uh, did some things on immigration, including putting a pause on President Trump's wall. He ended the Muslim ban. So there were a lot of things that he could do on his own that were sort of these first steps in much larger policy areas like climate, like immigration, where I think there is going to be a real push and pull with Congress and the really tightly divided um, Senate. But there were some things he could do right away, and his team had them sitting on his desk for him on day one. Yeah. And David, the next day, and you cover the White House, you're there all the time. Uh, the next day, I think he signed yesterday another 10 more, right? Right. <laughs> so um, have you ever seen this sort of flurry of uh, activity all prepared ahead of time with any other no, administration? Uh no, and it's especially impressive when you consider the fact that the Trumpites didn't exactly cooperate with the Bidenites coming in. So it was, it was pretty impressive. But, but it didn't surprise me because I think so much of Biden's challenge ahead is to unwind so much of the, of the things that Trump did. It's going to occupy an awful lot of his time. So I'm sure he figured, you know, why not? No, no time like the present. Let's go ahead and get started. And I think that's what he did. But for you as a reporter, I mean, they, uh, you know, these executive orders are not just, um, you know, scratched out on a yellow legal right. pad, right? There's a lot of work that goes into them. Uh, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure that he's, 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 the transition legal team must have been the busiest. But with all due respect to Chris, I think the transition <laughs> legal team had by far the, the biggest assignment. And one of them was putting together these executive orders because some of them are going to be challenged in court. So they'll have to defend them. But it's it, yeah, it's an awful lot of work. And it was it was awfully impressive. And I think all of them are going to stand up uh, stand up to any legal challenges that come their way. Yeah. Tell us about that, Chris. What about the, the transition work that, I mean, that went into the preparation of these? You know, it was really a remarkable effort. And a lot of this goes back to the initial campaign promises that um, candidate Biden uh, made when uh, on the virtual campaign trail, since there wasn't a real campaign trail. Uh, but well, but they really brought in people who had been uh, experience in policy and legal issues. And, you know, a lot of this was just kind of gamed out uh, from day one. And, you know, the, the challenge is you don't have the time to run an ordinary interagency process to get these things cleared since you can't float them by career officials. But when you have the breadth of experience of former administration officials serving on these different agency teams, you could effectively 
duplicate that process. And look, executive orders are really important. This is a first step. Uh, but understand that with many of these, there are regulations that need to be implemented in order to carry them out. Uh, they will be challenged, as uh, executive orders and regulations always are. And for many of these issues, uh, fundamentally, you need legislation to solve them. Mm -hmm. So important to get out of the box. There's a whole bunch of other ones that are coming out today uh, that are important, too. Uh, but eventually, we have to get down and start talking about legislation. Yeah, uh, and we'll get there in just a minute, too. So, uh, Eliza, how long does the honeymoon last? Well, I'm not sure, quite sure he's even in a honeymoon. I think people, you know, <laughs> praised his speech, uh, maybe. But look at what's happening in the Senate right now. There's a 50-50 split, but Democrats have um, the vice president to be their tiebreaker, and so they technically have the majority. But uh, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer can't come to a power-sharing agreement at this moment, which basically means that Democrats who should be able to take over these committees are not able to at the moment. And so really, it's kind of chaos over there. They don't even know who's leading the committees that are supposed to be confirming uh, Biden's cabinet nominees. Some of them are moving forward. I think some of the really critical ones, I mean, we even saw, um, you know, some already be confirmed and some are on slate, mm -hmm. but it's definitely dragging things out. And that's just who's in charge. I mean, I think we're not even talking about legislation yet. Right. Uh, David, one other thing we saw uh, unusual, I think, on um, day one, meaning the very day the president was sworn in, is that the new press secretary, Jen Psaki, had her first briefing on January 20. Uh, Chuck Todd said he did some research and it was the first time the, a new press secretary ever had a press briefing on the very first half day, if you will, of a presidency. Um, how do you see Jen Psaki's role at the White House? Um, so what she's already shown, basically projecting a sense of calm and normalcy around the new president and talking about what he's doing. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because Chuck did make a good point. It, it, was, it was highly unusual to do it, to do a, a news conference on the very first day, very first half day, if you will. But yeah. I think she wanted to lay down a marker and set a tone. And I think she's done that. I mean, one of the best things about the briefings is, you know, there's so many, so many leaks about what things are going on. For example, there was the leak about uh, Biden was going to extend this Russian arms control agreement for five years. Well, Jen came out and eventually confirmed that. So it was, it was it was a good good example of how press secretaries can come out and explain to people what's really going on and why it's going on. And that's a very welcome change from what we've had in the past. I was going to say, do you, you already see in a couple of days a change from uh, what we saw in the briefing room under the Trump administration? Oh, very much so. I mean, there's much less... You know, it's much less worry and anxiety about what the president's going to tweet or who's going to leak what on who and how much of it is true. So that alone makes it makes it different. By the way, there's all, one other thing, though. They've really tightened the reg. As you know, Bill, they've really tightened the regs on, on COVID now. Oh, yeah. They put mm -hmm. up uh, plastic s screens all over the West Wing. And it, basically, they've restricted the ability of reporters to come over to the White House because you have to make a reservation to get a COVID test before you're even allowed in the White House press room. And that's something different. I'm a little concerned about that because it could be interpreted as a sign that they're trying to trying to prevent people from coming over there, and, and mm -hmm. hopefully it's only temporary. But that is one thing. I, that's the, the the biggest thing I noticed, frankly. Yeah, you notice reporters now they have a uh, which I'm sure you do a, a little uh, on their mm -hmm. wrist, right? Right. A little bracelet right. that blue, says 
blue wristband to show that you've been tested and, so and you've been tested. tested negatively. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, um, COVID and speaking of the briefing room, uh, Chris, yesterday, a visitor to the briefing room, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, not his first time that was there, but he pointed out that this time seemed a little different to him. Here's Dr. Fauci in the briefing room with Jen Psaki uh, Thursday afternoon. There were things that were said regarding things like hydroxychloroquine and other things like that that really was an uncomfortable because they were not based on scientific fact. I take no pleasure at all in being in a situation of contradicting the president. So it was really something that you didn't feel that you could actually say something and there wouldn't be any repercussions about it. The idea that you can get up here and talk about what the science is and know that's it. Let the science speak. It is somewhat of a liberating feeling. Chris, this is uh, Anthony Fauci unchained, huh? And I think this is the tone for this administration. Um, the president, President Biden, has said he's going to speak the hard truths even if people don't want to hear them. And you've seen the contrast. Just go back to last February at the outbreak of uh, coronavirus. You know, you had President Trump saying, you know, we're at 15 cases. It'll go down to zero soon. Contrast that with what Biden said yesterday, which is we're at 400,000 deaths. We will likely get to 500,000 deaths uh, in the next month. The, the, the worst is still to come. Um, he's not mincing words. And I think, you know, it, it, that is refreshing because I think what we've missed over the last year, uh, well, a year with regard to the COVID is the president who's willing to level with the American people about the challenges ahead. And you clearly saw a liberated Tony Fauci yesterday. And he is such a trusted figure. It, it does behoove this administration to keep him out in front of the message on this. Right. And it does say that science is going to lead the way, right? And well, let's, as Dr. Fauci put it, uh, let science speak. Um, but uh, Eliza, the first goal that they've set and it was uh, 100 million vaccinations in the first 100 days. Uh, that's a big hill to climb. It is a big hill to climb. Um, health experts say it is possible, especially with some of the things, you know, Biden already has put in place since in office. He put um, basically a wartime action in place to make it so that factories can be manufacturing things related to COVID, related to vaccines, to sort of speed up that process. Um, there, you know, he's calling for more money for vaccines and testing and reopening schools. Um, it is absolutely possible. But the other thing health experts say is that actually is not even enough. So while mm -hmm. that's a big goal, if you were to do that, you still would not be on track for herd immunity until sometime in 2022. <laughs> and so while that is a significant change from what we saw you know, under President Trump, I think health experts are saying, great goal. Now let's even expand that further. Yeah. Uh, and David, again, being there every day, yesterday the president released uh, this plan, a national COVID action plan, if you will, which he called we're on wartime footing. Um, we've gone a year, and yet this is the first time the White House has come forward with a plan of action. Yeah, very much so, because Trump kept putting it off on other people, particularly the, the states. And that's one of the problems I think Biden's going to have, and it, it, it relates back to what we talked about earlier about all the challenges of undoing what Trump did. A lot of states are in control of this uh, of, mm -hmm. the, of the vaccination process, and uh, I think the 
Biden administration is going to have trouble with some of them. I'm looking at a headline here where state of Texas is threatening to pull vaccine doses if the city of Dallas proceeds with a plan to priorities vulnerable communities. I think you're going to see that these kind of problems all over the place, particularly in red states, and it's going to it's going to present a problem in, in, in terms of dealing with local officials. Uh, and maybe again reflecting that there wasn't any national standard no. and wisdom national standards now. Maybe Trump shunned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there'll be less of that. Uh, so much going on, and uh, we're still talking about a possible, not a possible. Uh, it's just a matter of when the Senate trial for Donald Trump is going to get underway in the United States Senate. A lot of disagreement about that still. Uh, we'll jump into that and uh, some other issues of this busy, busy week here in Washington, D.C. After we take a short break here on the Bill Press Pod, today's roundtable with David Jackson, Eliza Collins, and Chris Slew. Today's roundtable brought to you by the good men and women of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union of the UFCW. Next time you check out at your local Safeway or Publix or Ralph or Giant or whatever your major uh, retail grocery outlet is where you live, say a little thank you to the person who checks you out, certainly a member of the UFCW. They're the people who do the checkout at the supermarkets, who stock the shelves, and who prepare the meat and the poultry that you buy while you're there. Uh, people at the big who work for us and serve us at our big grocery chains, retail stores, meat and poultry processing plants across the country, all under the leadership of President Mark Perone. We thank them for their good work, thank them especially for being on the front lines during this COVID crisis, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. A 
We're back with today's roundtable. David Jackson joins us from USA Today, Eliza Collins from the Wall Street Journal, and Chris Liu. Uh, he's a MSNBC contributor. I think he'll be back on that pretty soon, and uh, a member of President Biden's transition team. So, Chris, um, the House has impeached Donald Trump for the second time. He is now uh, due for trial, uh, conviction trial in the United States Senate. Um, some people thought it might start as next early as next week. Mitch McConnell says he wants to wait until February 13. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think I think a delay makes most sense for both sides. I think the priority right now for the Biden administration is trying to get as many of their nominees confirmed as possible. The first one got done yesterday, the DNI, and I think uh, I think General Austin may get confirmed today as well as uh, Janet Yellen. Uh, but it's a problem uh, in terms of the overall timing in the Senate. I mean, the most valuable thing you have in the U.S. Senate, I say this is somebody who spent four years there, is time on the floor. And, you know, it's unclear whether this will be a, you know, several week trial, which seems unlikely given sort of the lack of facts and issue here. But any Senate time taken away is time taken away from nominations and potentially moving forward on a second round or an additional round of economic relief. Right. Uh, and Eliza, with Mitch McConnell, who is now the minority leader, um, does he have the power to hold, I mean, to enforce a delay or hold a delay or announce a delay? Well, unlike in the House, where the minority has really no power, in the Senate, one single senator has power. And to Chris's point, it's all about time on the floor. So mm -hmm. members can do things to block different things, to extend time. Um, and the other thing is because it is such a tight uh, breakdown, that 50-50 split, uh, Schumer and McConnell are coming to this agreement on sort of how they share power. And so McConnell does have a say in the schedule and things like that. Republicans will have to agree, basically, with what Schumer proposes in order for things to move in a quickly move quickly rather than get dragged out for a long period of time. Uh, and I think the ultimate power that Mitch McConnell has is his vote. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he held out a hope, at least for some Democrats, in a recent statement on the floor uh, that he might vote to convict. Um, he's privately told people he thinks Democrats did the right thing in impeaching the president for inciting the riot on January 6th. Here is uh, Senator McConnell a few days ago on the floor. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. They were provoked by the president. Uh, David Jackson sounds like he might even vote to convict. Um, it's possible. I think it's a real thing. I did a story on this last week, and I talked to several people in McConnell world. He's, I think he's very angry about Trump. He's been angry for a while, but he has he's, he's hit it well, and he's actually gone out of his way to protect him at times. But now that Trump's out of office, I think he's really mad. He, he feels like the insurrection was just a, just a disaster for the Republican Party moving forward. And I, I think he feels like this is an opportunity to basically excommunicate Donald Trump. And I think he's thinking about it seriously. Now, I hasten to add that I noticed the other day that there are some Republican senators, including Lindsey Graham, who are saying that if McConnell votes to convict, he won't be Senate, le Senate Republican leader anymore. So there's starting to be a little bit of blowback. But uh, I'm getting the distinct impression that uh, McConnell is willing to convict, and so are a bunch of other Republican senators. So this trial is, it could be quite, quite interesting. Boy, I got to tell you, just <laughs> if it comes down to um, legislative skill, 
Lindsey Graham versus Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Boy, I put my money on on Mitch McConnell. David, uh, I, I, it's always fun having a South Carolinian on our panel here <laughs> uh, because we learned today that, that, that Donald Trump has hired this high-powered lawyer from Columbia, South Carolina to represent right. him, a guy named Butch Bowers. What do you know about him? Uh, he's a well-known government lawyer. He's, uh, he re he's represented Mark Sanford and Nikki Haley when they had complaints filed against them over the years. So he has experience in this kind of thing. But I, I got to tell you, he's, he's well known in South Carolina, but he's not well known in Washington. And all I can figure, he's the first guy to say yes, because Trump has had, has had a lot of trouble finding <laughs> attorneys willing to represent him to the degree that Trump even wants to defend this case. I, I, I get the impression he's going to try to ignore it. So that's another interesting thing coming up is, is uh, Trump's defense is going to be it, it's going to be intriguing. <laughs> That's a good word for it. I yeah. <laughs> well, so Chris, several people have pointed out, and uh, I think a couple of you referenced it in terms of the executive orders that the president has signed. You know, like this is a good start, right? But a lot of it, I think, Chris, you made this point, depends on action by the Senate. It depends on uh, the president's ability to uh, carry through with uh, uh, his past relationships with Mitch McConnell and others. And with the willingness of some of those Republicans, like Mitch McConnell and others, to cooperate with a new president, what are, what do you see? And the president has put some big big items on the table already: an immigration plan, a 1.9 billion dollar COVID uh, stimulus bill. What do you see the chances of actually getting some of this legislation through the Congress? How do we read that? You know, I, I'm hopeful, but I'm a realist. Uh, well, let's start with the $1.9 trillion um, economic relief bill. Uh, this weekend, I think Brian Deese, the head of the National Economic Council, is going to meet with uh, 16, um, a bipartisan group of 16 senators. These are the 16 senators that helped broker the last deal in December. And it's smart, because if you can get these folks to buy into all or even just some of the proposals, uh, you could start moving this in chunks. And, and I think the most important part is the money that would go uh, for vaccines and PPEs and reopening schools, where I really do think that there is bipartisan support around this. Uh, and so I think there, you know, this is an administration that's going to that's going to do two things. It's going to continue doing executive orders uh, to make progress on its policy priorities, but it's going to continue to extend an olive branch to Senate Republicans and see if they can find some cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see it, Eliza? You kind of spend a lot of time on the Hill. Uh, are Republicans? ready to make deals and move forward? I think they're ready to make deals on a very, very, very small number of things in that larger bill. Um, I think there could be some bipartisan support for things like the $1,400 stimulus checks. We've already seen, you know, people like Marco Rubio saying that they support that. I think some money for vaccinations, for testing, potentially to reopen schools. Those are things that there could be bipartisan support for. There are a lot of things in that bill that are frankly non-starters for Republicans. Uh, $15 minimum wage for one, and then just the overall price tag. And we've seen some of the usual Republicans that Democrats go to first to make deals. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, already saying that they don't see the need for a bill that big when Congress recently passed something at the end of last year. So I think 
the idea of getting that whole bill or even a large chunk of it through is very ambitious and unlikely. I think what's more likely is some small targeted pieces of it in a bipartisan way. And then you will see Democrats use that reconciliation tool, which is where they're able to get past mm-hmm. things with just 51 votes. And I talked to Bernie Sanders last week about this. He said he's already sort of creating his own packages for reconciliation. Basically, they're going to try to work with Republicans. But if that doesn't work, there's a real push, especially from some of the more progressive Democrats, to just move on on their own. How, how uh, involved do you expect, David, to see a the former senator and longtime uh, ally, or I wouldn't say ally, but certainly friend of Mitch McConnell? I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, how active do you think Joe Biden will be in in this legislation, unlike Donald Trump, for example? <laughs> or unlike Barack Obama, I think, I yeah. think Biden will be very involved. I, I think he still, he still has an affinity for the Senate, and I think he's going to be on the phone with a lot of his buddies a lot of the time, including McConnell. In fact, I, I'm convinced they've already talked. I think when history history is written, we'll, we'll see that Biden and McConnell have had a lot more interaction than we know about. So, and I, I think that's going to continue. And I think Biden, Biden's always seen himself as an honorary senator, and I think he's going to try to continue that role even in the White House. Uh, do you think he'll be bringing the congressional leaders down to the White House? Oh, I would th- so I'm almost surely, right? I mean, how yeah. could he not? Well, it seems to me it was just something that, yeah. again, we, we hear this phrase, um, return to normalcy, right? And right. that was sort of the normal way of doing things. Right. Well, Obama did that, and he didn't even like to do it. That was, that was Biden's <laughs> thing. So I'm sure Biden is going to continue it now that he's in, in the Oval Office. Right. Um, and um, the politics of it, you know, how long before it just it, it gets back to the uh, division that we saw before? I, I, I was a little troubled this week in the response of um, Rand Paul to the president's inaugural address. Uh, who, as Eliza, you mentioned earlier, I think all of you did, that the initial reaction was this was a message that it was the right message for this time and that all Americans needed to hear. Uh, but there were uh, voices of dissent. And here is Rand Paul, who picked out what he thought was the worst part of that inaugural address. So if you read uh, his speech and listen to it carefully, much of it is thinly veiled innuendo, calling us white supremacists, calling us racist, calling us people who don't tell the truth. And going forward, we're not going to have manufactured or manipulated truth. Well, that's another way of saying, oh, all of my opponents manufacture and manipulate the truth and are liars. Hey, Chris, I didn't hear that. You know, look, we can never forget in all of this, notwithstanding the calls for unity, that we are in an unprecedented time of partisanship and tribalism. And so it doesn't surprise me that there are people on the other side of the aisle that would object to some of this. And it's also, frankly, a reflection of, you know, the changing Republican Party. I do think, you know, President Biden is going to sit down with congressional leaders, but there's a whole new or uh, senators, but there's a whole group of senators that he simply hasn't interacted with. You think about a, mm-hmm. a Josh Hawley, whose you know, mentor <laughs> right. was John Danforth, who's a, a guy that Joe Biden knew well, or a Marsha Blackburn, who replaced Bob Corker. It's a different group of Republicans. And so, yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I have no doubt that Joe Biden knows Chuck Grassley well, Mitch McConnell well, and can work with them on things. But there are a lot more, you know, the Rand Pauls and the Marsha Blackburn over there than, than, than the old group. Uh, and Eliza, we haven't heard Mitch McConnell say 
that our number one goal is to make sure that Joe Biden is a one-term president. Uh, we haven't no. heard him say it yet. We right? haven't. <laughs> right, right. I, mean, I think the McConnell-Biden relationship really does matter, and I think we'll at least start things off on a decent footing. But remember, McConnell did not acknowledge Biden's victory for, I think, a month. And so, yes, they are friendly and they can work together and definitely more than some of those other newer senators. But at the end of the day, they are on different teams. And I think the way this country is and just how partisan it is and the pressures within McConnell's caucus and the pressures within Biden's caucus will make it difficult for them to make, get a lot done together. Yeah, right. Uh, well, it makes you... After this, at the end of this roundtable, it makes one wonder what next week is going to look like, right? I mean, looking back, January 6th, the invasion of the Capitol and the certification of the electoral vote. January 13 was the second impeachment of Donald Trump. January 20, the inauguration of Joe Biden. God knows what's what's going to happen next week, right? Uh, but it is a wild time, and uh, you guys did a great job of summing it up today. Thank you, uh, David Jackson. Thank you, Chris Liu. Thank you, Eliza Collins. Before you go, uh, was there either either related to inauguration or or not uh, any favorite story of yours this week you could uh, you can share with us? Um, who goes first, Eliza? Sure. So you mentioned uh, the poet at the inauguration, Amanda Gorman. And I mean, she was just such a star. And I think her she was a story on her own. But reading a little bit about her and how she started doing poetry was really interesting because she did it to get over a speech impediment, actually. And so that's how she was trying to get over the speech impediment. And then she realized she needed to start performing out loud to really be able to tackle it. And so, you know, what we saw on Wednesday was just really remarkable. And given how young she is and just how recently she was struggling with that is pretty amazing. It was an amazing story and an amazing performance there at the inaugural. What what presence to get up in front of that crowd, right? Uh, and just shine the way she did. And the and if you read her poem, and I've read it several times, I mean it is the words are really as powerful as the performance was more powerful very very great message important message uh how about you david well i'm gonna go with the sports story so bear with me Uh, before before last week one of the great trivia questions was there are only four colleges that produced a u.s president and a super bowl winning quarterback there was (laughs) michigan stanford navy and miami of ohio well now there's a fifth one because Joe Flacco, who led the Baltimore Ravens to the Super Bowl title a few years back, went to the University of Delaware, which, uh-huh. of course, also produced one Joe Biden. So our new president is also an expanded answer to one of the great sports trivia questions. Congratulations, Joe. <clears throat> Boy, I would have not gotten to first base with that sports question. <laughs> I wanted to explain it, but it's a fascinating piece of trivia, if you ask uh, me. It is, and as a native of Delaware, I am I must say I'm proud of uh, our Delawarean Joe Biden and the University of Delaware and the role that it played, too. Right. Go Blue Hens. <clears throat> Go Blue Hens. <laughs> How about it, Chris? Well, I want to give a shout out to my former boss, Tom Perez, who yesterday uh, stepped down as DNC chair, one of the hardest jobs in politics, especially when your party is out of power. And when you consider the state of the Democratic Party in 2017, when Tom took over and four years later, 
you flip the White House, the House, the Senate. Uh, it's remarkable. And, and I think what people often forget is um, the governorships that got flipped in 2018 uh, in Wisconsin and Michigan and then holding Pennsylvania, as well as the attorney generals. And you think about what the election results could have been uh, if those, if those uh, seats were not controlled by uh, governors committed to the rule of law. And I'll simply say this, Tom did it the old-fashioned way by uh, investing in state parties and data and technology. And so um, he really deserves congratulations for a job well done. Uh, I want to second that. He did a great job as Secretary of Labor, did a great job as uh, DNC chair. And uh, I expect great things also of Jamie Harrison, uh, David from South Carolina. Another South Carolinian. Another South Carolinian uh, who was the new chair of the DNC. Well, I want to share with you my favorite story of the week uh, was seeing uh, news last night about the TV ratings for the inauguration. Um, you may have already noticed, uh, seen, reported that Joe Biden's inauguration Wednesday, January 20, actually gathered a TV audience of 40 million people, which, by the way, is one and a half million more than Donald Trump got in 2016. Uh, so I think this is probably hurts Donald Trump more than anything else, that he not only lost the election by 8 million votes, but he lost the TV audience by one and a half million. So Barack Obama had a bigger crowd on the mall, and Joe Biden had a bigger crowd on television than Donald Trump did. Oh, the <laughs> all, the all the indignity. <laughs> all the indignity is right. Oh, my. Uh, great panel today. Thank you so much, Eliza Collins. Thank you, David Jackson. Thank you, Chris Liu. And thanks to all of you for listening and joining us. Um, we really appreciate having you here. And we just want to ask one thing of you as we say goodbye we just don't forget this covid uh, covid virus is with us more than ever so please don't relax uh keep wearing your mask washing your hands practicing social distancing take good care of yourselves because we want to see you on the next edition of the bill press pod <laughs>